Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Um, I'm George. I'm an alcoholic. Really grateful to be here um, to see some old friends and new friends and two of my favorite girlfriends, Doug and Lee. (laughs) Um, I want to thank Polly for asking me to be here this weekend and the committee for treating me like a queen this weekend. It's been lovely. Um, And Sonia, your music is gorgeous. Beautiful, touching, spiritual, almost. Woo! Almost as spiritual as starting Sunday morning with, get on the scene, like a sex machine. <laughs> I come in here this morning, I'm like, oh, you know, getting ready to speak, and that was, <laughs> that's what was playing. So, um, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> um, and I want to thank Miss Lori for Friday night for reaching out to me. I um I was a little funky when I got in here, and um and sometimes you don't know what something as simple as asking somebody how they are, um, shooting somebody a smile, asking them how they are, whatever the thing is, and um and Lori did that, and I just want to thank you because you helped pull my head out of my lower extremity. (laughs) I um. I've been sober 21 years. My sobriety date is February 1st, 1993. Um, I got sober when I was 24, which makes me way older than I thought I would ever be. I I just turned 46 last weekend, and I never thought I would be this old. And I realize that there are older people here, but this is the oldest I've ever been, and I I never dreamed that this would happen. I started drinking at a really young age. Alcohol's always been a part of my life, and I hung out with people that were drinking like me, and our, the people that we admired were people we called, um, were in the 27 Club, like Jim Morrison and Janice Joplin and all these people who died young, and that was sort of what we aspired to do, which is weird. Um, <laughs> but that's it. And so... Um, there was a song by Blondie called Die Young, Stay Pretty, and that was kind of our theme and, and my dream. And so now I'm getting a little long in the tooth, so I've got to come up with another, <laughs> another goal. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't remember my first drink. I recently found a picture, I guess a couple of years ago, uh, looking for pictures to post on Facebook. So exciting. That's my newspaper every day. And I found this picture of my dad when I was, the, the age on the picture is 11 months old. I was 11 months. And he was giving me a beer and this huge beer stein and, and he was tipping the back of it. And, you know, and I'm in this like little stroller and I thought, oh, maybe that was my first drink. You know, I've, I've always been envious of people who remember their first drink and how that felt. I just always remember alcohol being a part of my life and being allowed to drink out of the adult's drinks and when not allowed doing it anyway. But um, alcohol's always been a part of my life. And um, God, I, I, my life was such a mess before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just, I can't even, I can't, I, I look back 
at my Drunkalogue, and it seems like a whole nother person, thanks to the steps. I mean, I, my, my life today is good for one reason only, and that is because of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is, if each day I can wake up and work on my spiritual condition and use the tools I've been given here, going to meetings, working with a sponsor, sponsoring people, praying, doing the steps, you know, all of the stuff we're taught to do here, using all the tools. If I just focus on that every single day, work problems work out, relationship problems work out, financial problems, everything is all good if I just focus on that. But um, but I haven't always done that. So um, a lot of the wreckage that I created and, and went through was in sobriety because, as I mentioned last night, I got sober young. And so I made a lot of mistakes and learned a lot in front of God and everyone. And, and those mistakes have um, actually become assets. Like our book says, we won't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. So had I not been through everything I've been through, I wouldn't be here today with you. So... Um, the 10th and 11th step are a big part of my life today. I, um, with the 10th step, I always like to say I've never walked away from a situation wishing I'd been more of a bitch. And so, <laughs> so if I feel, <laughs> if I feel really strongly about something that I've got to say or do, uh, it should be the same in about 24 hours. So I'm going to just hold on for a second. And I'm so grateful that I have a sponsor, um, I've always had a sponsor who has helped me through the steps, and today my sponsor is Marilyn S. <laughs> I am royalty. Um, she is fabulous. She's been my sponsor for 19 years, and I was actually talking to Doug, and I said, she kind of reminds me of Polly, except Polly's a little bit louder, but <laughs> I was telling Marilyn that I was going to be here, and I was excited about meeting Polly, because I've been hearing so much about Polly, and um, she said, Polly is too wonderful for words. Mm. <laughs> uh, Polly spoke at our Wednesday night meeting, and I wasn't there that week, so I hurried and got the CD and listened to it right away, and I told Marilyn, I said, oh, my gosh, that was the most amazing talk. And she says, really, was it? She said, because I can't even judge anymore. She's so wonderful. Everything she does is perfect. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I said, no, it was really good. Um, and I, I picked that reading because um, laughter has saved my butt, finding humor and everything. And, and I always like to say this at some of my most difficult moments have been some of Marilyn's funniest. <laughs> I'm grateful that when I can't find what's funny in something, my sponsor can. And boy, do I appreciate that. <laughs> but I do the same with the girls I sponsor. I was telling Amanda this last night. I sponsor the most wonderful woman. Okay, she's my favorite. But... So she, she has no idea how magnificent she is, and, um, but I know, and I just love her, and she works hard. She's, she's probably the, the one person that I sponsor who was, who's willing to do all the stuff I had to do, and, you know, you love babies like that, so, but she's always beating herself up, and she's very nervous, very nervous, and um, she came over to my house to do some step work, and I, I'm um, engaged to a normie, and so she came over, and 
I, I told her, you know, he's going to be here, but we'll, we'll sit down at the kitchen table and do our work. So she came over and I said, um, okay, sweetie, we're going to start, you know, our step work. And he goes, okay. And he leaves the room. And so she sits down and thinks we're going to start, but he comes back in with his glasses on. And he sits down at the kitchen table with a pen and a piece of paper, and he goes, I am so excited. I've never done this before. Do I go first? Oh, my God. It's the funniest freaking thing. So funny. I love that. And he, he got a new boss recently, and... Um, we invited him over for dinner. He was new to town, and we invited him over for dinner, and I, we don't have guests a lot. We live kind of out in the boonies, so we usually go to other people's places. So we're really excited when we have guests, like we're, we're over, like, oh, come on in, we've got all this ready for you, you know, we're, you know, so excited to have anyone in our house. So he shows up at the door, but um, what we did is I put a shower cap on, and I put on my robe, and he put on his robe, and we answered through, and we're like, what, what do you, what, no, it wasn't tonight, and, poor guy, but, <laughs> so, we absolutely insist on enjoying life, and, um, <laughs> anyway, back to the identification, you know, well, let me say this, I am, I was thinking about what I should have said last night, because that's what we do, and, um, <laughs> I was thinking how grateful I am that um, I have an incurable fatal disease and the cure <laughs> is to come and sit with you and and talk and tell stories. And, you know, it's like this old-fashioned storytelling cure. You know, we tell our stories and somehow we're healed. And, you know, any separateness I feel um, disappears when I'm honest when I share how I'm feeling, when I share what's going on, when I listen to how you're doing, that separateness that I felt for so long disappears. And sharing the hardest things, you know, really being honest um, about who I am and what I'm going through is really what gets rid of that separateness. But it also allows you to do the same. And, um, and I think sometimes we're so afraid to say what's really going on. Um, and, but when we do, it sets everyone free. And I, I'm just so grateful that that's my cure. <laughs> you know, it's how great is that, that that's what we get to do. And, um, so I, I started drinking, as I said, really young. I, um, was arrested for drinking in public when I was 11. So I know it was already pretty bad at that point. Um, my dad died of cancer when I was six and I was raised as an only child with my mom. Uh, what I knew of my mom was that, she did not know how to drive. She didn't work before my dad died. And so when my dad died, um, I've got to watch the time. Okay. Um, when my dad died, she had to learn how to drive. She had to go to work and, and to keep a schedule to take care of me. She worked in a school cafeteria during the day. And then every day of the week, she cleaned a different person's house. And then on the weekend, she cleaned a church. And, um, and so when she was at home, she would just go straight to her reclining chair, watch TV, and smoke her more menthols and did not want to be bothered, you know, because her life was hard. She never dated. She never really had any friends after my dad died. She was depressed. She would rage. She was angry. And then at other times, she was so funny and fun to be with, And but I just never knew what I was going to get. And I was incredibly lonely for as far back as I can remember. I um, 
I feel like I was born singing the blues, like heavy, heavy, heavy. Everything was so heavy. I had all these really big emotions and this little person. And I just, I remember always wanting to be an adult because somehow that would, I'd have kind of an upper hand or at least I'd understand what was going on. And I would come home and my mom would be in her reclining chair and she would just look at me and just go, not now, Georgie. Ugh, like that. That's it. Hello. You know, she just could not even tolerate my, my being there sometimes. And um, the way I like to describe it, well, I don't like to describe it, but the, the best description is that if you've ever been around someone and you just kind of get the feeling that they don't like you, and that's the feeling I had in my house. And so I started hanging out with other kids in the neighborhood. In elementary school, I was a great student. I got A's. I loved to learn. Um, I was about the height I am now in elementary school, though, unfortunately. And... Um, <laughs> All the boys were little, little, little people. And um, I was like, and so the kids, (laughs) the kids came up with a nickname for me, and that was BFU, which stood for Big, Fat, and Ugly. Thank you. I wish you were there. (laughs) Um, And um, and it's been really, it's so weird that 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 became just such a part of what I believed about myself, and so much of... What I was constantly looking for approval. I heard somebody say this, that their first higher power was your approval. And I desperately needed that. I was constantly looking to people to tell me I'm okay and, and to fill that emptiness inside. And if I don't work a diligent program today, I slip into that, that I'm okay if you think I'm okay type thing. And um, so I was constantly looking for somebody to love me because if somebody loved me, then I would be okay. I aspired to do and be nothing but loved. That is what I, I was constantly looking for that. And um, so the kids are calling me those names. My dad dies. My mom's, you know, doing whatever she's doing. And um, I just started looking for love. And um, alcohol bridged that gap for me. And I, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, until I got to that fourth column of the fourth step, I... Uh, I really was such a victim. Oh, my heavens. All the counselors said so. And, <laughs> and I was a bit of a hoe, although I would not have said that. I mean, seriously, my sponsor has been with one man, married to one man her whole life. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, I'm, I, I can't remember who... I'm trying to remember, well, all y'all kind of said it, but there were lots of people on my inventory that were like, the guy in the van. (laughs) But at that time, I genuinely felt like I was looking for love and that this may be an opportunity for me to be loved and have a life. And I thought if I could be loved... Um, everything else would fall into place. And I would automatically know what to do next. And um, in junior high, the kids came up with another nickname for me based on the size of my lips, which I will not repeat. But now people pay to have their lips done, so. (laughs) Obscene gesture for those listening on CD. But I was so, so desperate for love, and there was, um, I, I had a boyfriend, when I was 10, I had a 16-year-old boyfriend, which is just way too creepy to even think about too much, but um, there was another boy that I, I genuinely thought I loved. I, I ended up being with him from the time I was 12 to 20, and then 
I went back again a couple times in my 20s and then in sobriety because, yeah, it's, there's issues with the relationships, which I'll get to. But um, he broke up with me because I was so much younger than him and it wasn't right. And so while we were on this breakup, there was another older guy who was super creepy and I gave him my virginity because I couldn't stand the thought of him not liking me. And I did not even like him. I mean, he was so gross, seriously. And But I did that because I couldn't bear the thought of him not liking me. I couldn't bear the thought of anyone not liking me. And this was, I was 12 years old. And so that was at the beginning. That's just how it all started. And it didn't get better at all. And um, I always drank like a pig. From the moment I started drinking... Uh, like at 11 and 12, that's it. I mean, I had little drinks, as I said, as a child, but really I started drinking more as I was getting older and feeling more of the pain of what living was. I just like couldn't bear it. And so when I drank, it was like an e-ticket out of, out of myself. You know, I never knew I was going to end up. And I really enjoyed that. And I, uh, I never drank socially, clearly. <laughs> um, it's funny because I always use the story because I haven't found a better one yet, but my, one of my favorite shows is Sex in the City, and it's so fabulous. They wear dresses like this, and, um, and they drink out of these fabulous glasses, and they drink Cosmopolitans and flavored martinis and all of these fabulous drinks, and they have fun, and they laugh <laughs> while they're waiting for Mr. Big, and... I think, oh my gosh, maybe I too could do that. I mean, that looks really good, and I've come so far. And then suddenly I remember that the way I drink is with a funnel and a hose. <laughs> this <laughs> never happened. Never. Um, I could bear bong five bears at once. That was one of my sexy traps to get men. I remember being at Lake Havasu, and there were all these beautiful girls in little G-string bikinis, and they were running around, oh, you know, and I'm like there with my beer gut going, oh, so, so. <laughs> so horrible. I used to put out cigarettes with my bare feet. I thought that that was kind of sweet. And I could open beer bottles with a lighter. I know. I, I feel some of you are getting hot right now. <laughs> and I really thought that these were good qualities. It's so bizarre. I mean, seriously, that's why I said when I talk about this, it just seems like a whole other lifetime. I just, thanks to the steps, it's not how I behave now. But um, so I started suicide attempts really young. I, I, at 12 years old, was my first, 13 another time, and then another time in my 20s. I... Um, the, the one in my 20s, I, one of the, I have to back up, I'm, too many thoughts coming out of my mouth at one time. Oh. So another thing that started very young was my situation with men, and um, I, there was a lot of crossover because I was constantly looking for someone to love me, but nobody could love me enough. I wanted to be loved 100%, 24 hours a day. Like, if many of us have been through this where you rush to the hospital to find a loved one has been rushed to the hospital you go there to see if they've made it what's going on and you rush into the room you say oh my god I thought you were dead I love you so much I don't want to waste another moment that intensity that's how I want to be loved 24 hours a day every second every moment and nobody can do that nobody can love me with that kind of intensity 
And so each of these men failed me, and I let them know, every one of them. And then I would line up the next one and the next one and the next one. And um, I, I started getting lazier as I got older, and I started liking my men pre-screened, meaning that if you're dating them or even married to them, you've obviously done some screening, so they must be okay. So I'll just start there. Um, I do not live that way today. I did not. I was never monogamous until I got sober. Not in one relationship, not ever. I and you know I came here as I said, such a victim. I really felt like I couldn't trust anyone. And I remember somebody said to me when I was new, "Well, I'm just going to suggest that maybe you don't trust anyone because you can't even trust yourself." And I was like, "Oh!" But usually, when you do that, there's some truth to it. <laughs> so. Um, Anyway, so my last suicide attempt, I had just crossed over boyfriends and um, left the, the married boss that I was with and was with my roommate's brother who had a little problem with crack cocaine and was living with us. And he had moved out, or no, that was right before he moved in. I um, We were just making the crossover. And I just, I was getting really, really tired. Somehow I graduated from high school. Somehow... I had made it on my own. My mom moved away when I was 17, and somehow I had survived that long to be on my own and work, and I don't know how I got there, because every day really was not, it was hard, and I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I took care of myself. We never sat down to eat dinner. I'd been taking care of myself since I was a little girl. I'd been, you know, never had any rules. I've never been grounded. I've never had any structure at all. And so here I am, I'm in my early 20s, and I just don't want to live anymore again, and uh So I took my roommate's pain pills, and I drank a bottle of vodka, and then I realized that nobody was going to find me because my world had become really small, and I was like, oh, shit. And um, so I called the suicide hotline, and this is a true story. There was no answer. Story of my life. And... um, I ended up finding another suicide prevention line, and I called that line, and I had since... Um, learned how to to make myself sick because I I believe my alcoholism gets me wherever I'm weak and that can be food, sex, money, drugs, whatever. My alcoholism is always looking for a way out all the time, like even now. Like those cupcakes last night. I was like, hmm, there's a cupcake. Maybe you can have half of one. They're cutting them in half. No, eat the whole box. Ah!" You know, like... So I started starving myself when I was 13. I started throwing up when I was 17. And I didn't get any recovery from that until I addressed my alcoholism and I did all the things. But anyway, all all the things that we do, using all the tools here to maintain our spiritual condition. So flash forward, suicide attempt on the phone. I said, well, can I just make myself sick? Because I was actually really good at it. Um, it, Will I be okay? And he said, no, you've got to call 911. So I called 911, and I said, now I'm kind of scared sober. You know, I said, I I did this thing, and can I just make myself sick? Will I be okay? And and they said, no, we need to send an ambulance. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm okay. You don't need sirens and all that, just whatever. So the next thing I hear is running down the hallway of my apartment building, and like, oh, you know, that whole thing. It was all high drama. Well, actually, that came first, and then the running. And... um. And so the paramedics come in, and they are totally hot. That's a game changer. (laughs) And it's so weird that I spent so much time hating myself. And then on the other side, I thought, maybe I'm going to get lucky. (laughs) It's so funny, because 
Humility is found somewhere in between thinking you're the S-word and feeling like you're a piece of S-word. Like, humility is found right somewhere in the middle, and I would be like, whoo, I'm it, I'm not. So they rush me to the hospital, and um, after you have your stomach pump, they fill you full of charcoal, so then you end up with a charcoal frown, you know, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? Isn't it? <laughs> And as we do, I talked to the therapist who was supposed to keep me on a 72-hour hold. I told him, you know, I was fine and everything is going to be fine and blah, 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 and talked my way out. And so went home and woke up in the morning and realized that the paramedic station is just across the street. And maybe I'll go over and say hello, because that's normal. And <laughs> so I walk over. I'm like, hi, how you doing? Remember me? I took me to the hospital last night. I tried to kill myself. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> uh, so horrible. <laughs> and they they sent me away. They were very kind because they were used to dealing with crazy people. And but I was sinking sinking lower and lower. And that's when um I got together with Danny and um. Danny was my roommate's brother, and he had a little problem with crack cocaine, but he was better now. <laughs> Not so much. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to be with somebody who has a different buzz. You know, like in the 80s, you'd go to a party, and people would be drinking, and then a couple would sneak off to the restroom, and then they'd come out, and they'd be like, <laughs> how's it going? <laughs> And that was really gross. And, but then they'd invite you to go in the bathroom, and then you go in, and you're like, where's the keg? <laughs> so that's what I did with Danny. I just I couldn't, I couldn't not be with him because I needed somebody, and so I started doing that with him. And with it, it took like six months. I lost everything. I got evicted from where I lived. I got fired from my job, and he sold my car for a piece of crack cocaine about that big, which at the time went for about $20. And um, that's, that's where my alcoholism took me. And um, I ended up, I had no place to go, honestly. I, I would have been homeless if it weren't for my best friend, Diana. We grew up together in Locker Center, where I live now. And um, she had moved away after high school and started her life and was living in San Diego. And I stayed in L.A. and was circling the drain. And her parents still lived in our hometown. And she said, they have a room in their basement. You can go stay with them. And that's what I did. And... Um, I, I had been to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous with friends who really needed it, and uh, but I just knew it wouldn't it wouldn't work for me because I was either too bad for AA or not bad enough, and the God thing. Forget that, you know. There is no God. I was not raised with the religion and the life I'd had, the things that had happened. Mm -mm, don't believe it. But just in case there was, I would pray that if there was a God, that He would let me die. That was the only prayer I'd ever said, and. Um, so I lived in that house, and I, I drank for another year, and that was a really, really dark year. There were so many times I could have qualified for this program before that. I was at 13. I slid across the quad at school chasing a really cute boy, but I was really hammered. And so I slid on my face. I chipped my teeth, and at that time, the school counselor suggested AA. And then there were several times, um, you know, when I lost everything, I qualified for this program. So many times I qualified, but I wasn't done until I was done. And um, I... I tried staying sober on my own, and, and I couldn't do it. I was counting days, and then I drank, and 
Um, one day I poured my first guilt-free drink. It was a bottle of white Zin in the box. And um, I was slurping that up, and the phone rang. And it was a guy who worked with Diana in San Diego, and he said, I understand you have a problem with alcohol. And I said, I do. And he said, I want to give you the number of a woman to call. And he gave me Pat Wise's phone number. And I called Pat, and she said, Vince and I are going to a meeting. Why don't you come with us? And I said, okay. And so I did. And I get goosebumps every time I tell the story because a stranger called me, gave me the number of another stranger who took me to a room full of strangers, and I've been sober ever since. I mean, how does that happen? And I don't take my sobriety lightly at all. I um, I feel like speaking is such an awesome responsibility. It's so fun to be asked and then just terrifying and horrifying to actually have to do it. And um such an honor until the day of. You're like, damn it. And um, for me, I, I got sick for 16 years. No, not months, not weeks, not days. Every time I talked. And part of that was that it is such an awesome responsibility, and the other part is that, you know, I desperately want you to like me, but I have to let go of that. You know, I have to just be honest, and chances are, after you hear my story, <laughs> probably won't think too highly of me, but, um, no, this is how we all connect. I'm just being silly, but, so, I was, uh, I realized, I was driving to a meeting in the Valley, stopping at another public restroom to be sick, to go speak, and I called Marilyn, who's been my sponsor, as I said, for the last 19 years, and I said, I've got it. I have a medical reason that I shouldn't have to speak. And she laughed just like that. And um, she said, we all do things we don't want to do for our sobriety. Hmm. Now, if you happen to get sick at the podium, please don't mention that I'm your sponsor. (laughs) Um, anyway, so Pat and Vince brought me to the Pacific Group, which was different than any, any other meeting that I had been to. And, um, it, you know, I saw the light on in people's eyes. I heard people laughing, you know, and laughter is the way to my heart. I mean, that's it. Um, so that was, that was already just from the first meeting. I, I, couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe people were happy and sober at the exact same time. <laughs> um, so they took me to the group, and Pat said, I'll be your sponsor until you find one. And um, uh, Okay. And she started me on a very, very simple course of action, which was going to a meeting every day, getting commitments at meetings, calling her, just really simple stuff, which was great. And, um, but she had said, you know, I'll be your sponsor until you find one. So I found one. At about 30 days, I ended up... Um, changing to Tracy J. But during that first 30 days in going to meetings with Pat and Vince, a family friend came forward and told me all these secrets that my mom had kept from me. I'd always felt like there were secrets. There was always, I always felt like I just didn't know the whole story. And so this family friend came forward and told me all of these secrets about my mom. And I just was so angry and um, entitled, I was very entitled. And so I wrote all those secrets down in a book. And normally I would have taken them to my mom and told her what I thought about her because that's what I thought integrity was. And, but instead, I had already got it that I could take this to Pat. And so I took it to Pat, and I said, look, I found out all these secrets. And she said, it's so good that you have them written down, because you're going to need that later. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea what she meant. And um, 
She said, but what I want you to do right now is I, I want you to start being a good daughter and granddaughter. And I was like, wow, perhaps she didn't hear me. <laughs> but, um, but I had got, I had, I had made the decision that I was going to try this program and I was going to do everything that I was asked to do. And then when it didn't work, I could go back to my glamorous life. And in our group, we talk a lot about getting that first year foundation, you know, anything I'd want to, okay, I got sober and I'm like, I should go to school. I should quit smoking. Okay. I agree, Katie. I never wanted to go to school. I just had the idea that that's what I should do. And it always seemed like something. And then I go to school, I go, I hate this. But, um, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to um, get a great job, I am going to go on a diet and start working out, and it's time for a relationship. And luckily I ran that by someone, and they suggested that I just get a first-year foundation, that I put everything that I'd want to put into going into school, into getting my steps done. All the time and energy and love I'd want to put into a relationship, put that into AA. Um, don't quit smoking, no major changes in your first year, and for God's sake, no relationship. I don't even know what that means. So, um, but, so I was doing that. And so when Pat said to work on being a good daughter and granddaughter, we had to come up with a formula because I'm very literal. I, I don't know what that means. I've never had an example of that, not with my grandma or my mom, who were my only family. And uh, so it was that I would call once a week, I'd write once a week, and I'd visit as often as I could. And this was a living amends that I was doing out of order, but I needed to start taking these actions immediately. I just needed to take these actions. I didn't need to understand why I got to that when I got to that, those steps. But um, so I started calling once a week. I'd send a card once a week. And something I did differently here is I did not tell them that I was going to do this. I just simply started doing it because what I said I would do, I would rarely do. And I started to learn that my actions would speak louder than my words. Or they do speak louder than my words. And so I started doing that. And, um, you know, at first it was really awkward making that call. And so I'd always have to have, like, a topic, like, I see that the weather calls for clouds in your area this week. (laughs) (laughs) Or just something. I mean, I had nothing. Because what I used to do is I used to call my mom and grandma and just dump. I'd call and say, I have no place to live. I have no money. You know, I just broke up with another guy. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll call you. And then I wouldn't call for months. And my mom and grandma were now living together in their dueling reclining chairs, talking about the dirty, rotten bastards in the world and how they're getting screwed now. And, and then they get these calls from me from time to time. So I started to learn that um, for me to be sober, I needed to to start taking these actions. And so I uh, would make the call and I'd send the card and at first, I would just send cards that um, already said something, and I'd write, love, Georgia. And then I started hearing about how you were sharing experiences about your sobriety with your families and writing more. So I started writing more, imagining that they were savoring every word and saving these cards and rereading them from time to time. But I, I found out that, um, gosh, I don't even know how far, far along I was into this whole process, but pretty far. And my mom said... I called, and my mom said, well, we got your card. And I said, oh, I'm so glad. And she said, yes, but Grandma's been having to wipe them out to reuse them. Can you start writing them in pencil? And, uh, and so I did. And I'm going to tell you why I did. Because I was starting to, I had hope for the first time. And I, I, I was having, I was starting to have a, an experience of a higher power. I had this fellowship. I had a sponsor who promised me that I would never have to do anything ever alone, ever again, if I chose that. 
and um, that I could bring all my problems to her. And and these were tools that didn't exist for me before. And my mom and grandma still had the same old tools that they were using. And um, and I, I came to learn that he with the most tools has the most responsibility. And it's not fair, but it's true. And so I started writing those damn cards and pencil. And at first I started writing a little bit less and then eventually I picked up the pace again because it wasn't about how they received it. It was about what I was doing. It was about my side of the street. And what I, my side of the street is all I'm responsible for. The dirtier your side of the street, the cleaner mine needs to be. I've just got to be over there cleaning my side of the street. And that if I'm taking these loving actions, I'm experiencing love. If the other person does too, that's great. But even if they don't, I am. And so it works. And so I started doing this and um, in the meantime, I, I switched sponsors. I got Tracy J, and she used to say things to me like, "I call her in a panic from work, and you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Everything's blah blah blah." And she'd say, "Where are you now?" And I'd say, "At work." And she'd say, "So you have a job? Do you have enough money to get to the meeting tonight? Do you have gas in your car? You have a car? Then you're fine, you know." And she'd hang up, and <laughs> she say, she'd say things like. If it quacks like a duck and it looks like a duck, honey, it's a duck. <laughs> I actually love to hear her talk. But um, I went through the steps with her, and and, um, and that was a really amazing process because I really didn't get what they were all about. I mean, that's the whole thing about doing this with a sponsor. When I, when I would go to those meetings before, I would look at the steps on the wall, and they were just like, do you do them while you're sitting here right now? Is that how that works? Or I didn't really get how that worked, and... Um, I really didn't have difficulty admitting that I was an alcoholic or that my life was unmanageable. That was a no-brainer. But I also realized that that is a gift because some people come in here wondering, and I've never had to wonder. So I feel like that was such a gift, and I, I always want to remember that. Um, and the God stuff was really hard for me. And so she said, do you believe that I believe? And I said, I do. And I, I actually kind of felt sorry for her. But it was really sad that she had to believe in something like that to make her life bearable. But... Um, but she was the one who was sober and happy. So, <laughs> so she said, do you believe I believe? I said, I do. And she said, then I want you to pray to my God. And I started praying to her God. And I would say, God, on my knees, because she told me I had to. And I learned that the reason I say my prayers on my knees is not because God wants, you know, God doesn't say, well, I can't hear you. Get on your knees. It's, it's a surrender that I make. And that if I'm not willing to take a simple action like that, how will I be willing to, to face the other things that are going to happen today, you know? So to get on my knees at the beginning of the day and say, my sponsor says I have to ask you to help keep me sober today. And then at the end of the day, I'd say, my sponsor says I have to thank you for keeping me sober today. <laughs> <laughs> and that just goes to show that really intentions don't matter. It's the action. And that's what I started to learn is it's about taking the action that the feelings follow. Because really, if I, if I did exactly what I felt like doing, even today with 21 years sober, I would be laying in bed right now watching reruns of Law & Order. That's what I would do. I still don't want to do anything. But I fill my calendar and I show up and I keep my commitments. And as a result, I have this really full, wonderful life. But So um, she also wanted me to keep a book of God shots. And I was like, ooh. And so she said, well, coincidences. I was like, okay, I can, I can stomach that. <laughs> I started keeping a book of coincidences that were happening since I got sober. And before I knew it, that book was filling up. And before I knew it, I wasn't praying to her God anymore. And I don't know how that changed, but it was just by taking the actions, going to the meetings, you know, doing all the stuff that I was being taught to do and staying close to the group and being really active and 
and surrendering, you know, and I don't, it's like so many other things in AA, I don't realize that I've actually come through the other side until I'm talking to someone, I say, oh, yeah, I used to feel that way, and I think, oh my God, when did I stop feeling that way, you know, um, and I found that, you know, I won't regret the pastor wish to shut the door on it, um, that was really, really important for me. I lived every day of my life with regret. At 13, um, I, I was pregnant, and I terminated that pregnancy. And I drank and used over that, and, you know, it was, it was horrible. It was the, I just, I never, I just didn't think I could survive that guilt. And yet, I, you know, I come and I get sober, and I take these experiences, and I either use them to help someone else, or to change, to help um, change something I'm doing currently. And I get to use that, and, and it goes from being a liability to an asset. And I found that to be true with so many things. I mean, I really thought Alcoholics Anonymous was just about not drinking, but it's so much more about, um, about living. Because it's with a sober mind that I picked up a drink, that first drink every time. It is with a sober mind that I made that decision. So my problem isn't the drinking. That was my solution. You take it away. Now what the hell am I going to do? And that's what the steps do. They, okay, like let's, let's figure out what this is about and how, what's good, what's bad, what do we keep, what do we get rid of? How can you be, you know, the most useful in your life? And, um, so I'm going through the steps with Tracy. My, um, my relationship with my mom and grandma is surprisingly getting better. I thought it would just be that I wouldn't feel so much guilt anymore, but what was happening is I was feeling love for them. And I, um, my mom sent me a Mother's Day present. I guess I was like a year and a half sober. She sent me a, a, a package in the mail. It was a gift and a card, and it said, My sweet girl, you bring joy to my life. And I thought, on a couple of levels, because I couldn't imagine my mom feeling joy, and I couldn't imagine me having any part of that. And that was really powerful. Now, my mom did not really think that I needed Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, thought it was just a crutch. She said, I'm glad you have a crutch. Everybody needs a crutch. And it wasn't until I was three years sober that she even asked my sobriety date. It took a long time, you know, and I, I share about these, um, this living amends that I made with my mom and grandma because I'll hear people say, well, I've been trying to make amends with my family and they're, you know, they're not, they won't accept it. And I'll say, well, how long has it been? And they'll say three months, six months, a year. You know, they're like, Jesus. I mean, it took years to screw it up. And it took years of just being consistent. I made that call every week. I sent that card every week. And things began to change. And um, I think, I don't know, I was a few years sober. And I wasn't feeling so spiritual that day. And I called my mom. And she said, well, we got your card. And I said, oh, I'm glad. And she said, but it was in pen. And I thought, oh, dear. And I said, whoop, look at the time, I've got to go. And I called, that was the best thing I could do right there. And I called Marilyn, who's been my sponsor since I'm two, and I called her and she said, I said, I'm done. I write, I call, I visit, I'm done. And she said, oh, I think you've made a wonderful amends to your mother and grandmother and you don't owe them anything else. And I said, yeah! And she said, however... I think it would be a wonderful spiritual exercise if you continue to do so. <laughs> and that's how she gives me direction. Like I'll say, well, Marilyn, I've got option A or option B. And she'll say, well, 
you could do option A. Or you can fight for the good, but it's up to you. <laughs> really? Is it? I don't think so. Um, so let's see. So I go, I, I do this inventory and um, with Tracy and I, well, I did my third step with her at a conference on, the, on a mountain. It was lovely. I do a third step every day, but this was like my formal one. It was really weird to get down on my knees with another person, and it was, it was, it was actually kind of odd, but I was just learning to do what I was asked to do, and it got easier as, I, it, you know, as the years have gone on, but um, I did that inventory with her, and, and I was so damn happy to be sober. I was so damn happy there was an answer, like ridiculously annoying newcomer happy. I was in a pink cloud. People were like, well, you're in a pink cloud. That's going to pass, you know. But um, I, was, I was in a pink cloud for like six years. And the reason I was in a pink cloud is because I did all the stuff. If you do all the stuff, you can tap into joy all the time. <laughs> so, um, let's see. So, oh, so she says, I want you to write down all your resentments. And I'm like, I don't have any. <laughs> and she said, well, I want you to write down everyone you've ever been angry at. And I was like, oh. You know, I ended up with a 100-page inventory. And um, it was ridiculous. I, and, it, you know, it doesn't take too long to, to pull up that list. It's just it's, you've been working on it your whole life. It's just putting it on paper. It's just downloading. I just needed to download just some paper. And when I did that um, fifth step with her, I really did feel a sense of freedom and horror at who I was. You know, I mean, it was like, oh, my God. Wow. And I, I went home and I did that hour, you know, to see if I'm building, you know, what, what kind of foundation I'm building and have I skimped on anything? And, and no, I hadn't. I really hadn't. And, um, I, we looked at my character defects and she says, what do you, what do you think your character defects are? And I'm like, well, I guess I'm a perfectionist, which I actually think is a good thing. And, um, She's like, well, let me help you. Um, <laughs> and she went, you know, like. <laughs> and um, I started learning about practicing the opposite of those character defects. And I had lots of opportunities, like with my mom and grandma. I had this sense of entitlement. And um, I just want to add that with my mom and grandma, they absolutely believed that I should not, that they should not have to call me. To the degree that they would say, well, we wanted to wish you a happy birthday, but you didn't call. <laughs> so part of keeping my side of the street clean is on my birthday, I wake up and I'm like, instead of going, I know they're not going to call. I know they're not going to call because I know they're not going to call. Pick up the phone and call. Done. Enjoy the day. How simple is that? And that's what I'm saying about like my side of the street. There's so much power on my side of the street. That's all I have any control over. Well, not even control. Any power is on my side of the street. And, and when I did those things, I was set free, and I was free to love them. It was amazing, it, all these contrary things. And um, I, I went through those amend steps. I, um, you know, I had people that I had to apologize to, pay back financially. I had an, a warrant that I had to appear for, and I, I waited a couple of years to, to break that one out when Marilyn was my sponsor. And I'm like, okay, so I've got to go to work. I've got a panel I'm doing. 
um, but I need to show up for this warrant. And she's like, well, I think you should keep your panel and go the next morning and take a toothbrush. <laughs> and there was another one I had to make. I used to steal pot from my friend's mom, and I'm like, I'm not going to have to make amends for this because it's drugs. We don't deal with drugs anymore. We don't deal with drug dealers. I'm clean here. So I used to steal pot from my friend's mom. Oh, anyway, I'll go on to the next one. And she goes, oh, no, wait. You must find a newcomer and find out what the going rate for marijuana is. <laughs> this was a really hard one for me because this is a woman who took me in and I would have meals at her house and she treated me like a second mom. And it was, this was horrible. And... I had lost contact, hadn't seen them in a while, I wasn't living in the area, so I, I wrote a letter of amends and sent a check for the amount the newcomer told me the going rate of marijuana was. <laughs> and um, that check was cashed. Never heard from them, right? A few years later, this woman calls me because her daughter, my friend, was suffering and couldn't get sober. And she called me to surprise Kim at a meeting, and we went to that meeting together, and we've been in touch since, in fact... Last year, her twin boys that I used to babysit, um, one of them OD'd, and um, and I was able to be there for the family and actually sang it at his funeral. Um, you know, I, I I I find singing very cathartic, not so much for my audience, unfortunately. So, <laughs> but what I found is I found that this. Um, these desires that have been that God has put in me. Like I love music so much and and so I started doing these shows in AA. My sponsor actually made me when I was ninety days sober um audition for this show and I was terrified but I did it and um and by following that desire, it wasn't how I was I, I needed to be self supporting so I always had a job, but I started following that desire and in doing that I've been given um these wonderful opportunities to use that to be of service and, you know, like singing at this funeral. And um, many of you know Marilyn, um, two years ago, her son committed suicide. And, um, oh, my God, I, I, I just, I can't even imagine. I, I had no idea how she was going to survive. I, I just didn't even, I didn't know. I, and um, I didn't know what to do. I knew what I wanted to do is I wanted to attach to her, as she says, tick-like, and be with her every second of every day and make sure she's okay. Are you okay now? Are you okay now? And I wanted to crawl into bed with her and I wanted to hug her and squeeze her and kiss her. And that would be the thing she would hate the most on the planet. And I knew that well enough, so I called Pat, who was my first sponsor, and I asked her what to do. And she suggested that I maybe see what she needs and what she wants, you know, and maybe help her with her calendar and help her with whatever it was. And um, and she asked that me and my music partner at the time sing at her son's funeral. And what a great honor that was, you know. And it was by following this this desire that I had inside that I always thought, well, I'm never going to make a living doing that, you know. It's not, I, whatever. But it was this desire, and if I follow those desires, which I've come to to be clear about in in these steps, you know, and having a conscious contact with God, I've I found how to connect with that. Um, I've been able to. I've been given these amazing opportunities. But anyway, um, I I. Uh, Made it to my first year. I was told not to uh, to get in a relationship in my first year. So, uh, so in our group, we have a watch. When you turn 
one at midnight the night before you turn one, everybody gets together and sings happy birthday. So at about 1.30, I consummated a relationship. I waited one year, one hour, and a half. <laughs> I'm very literal. Um, we were engaged in 10 days. And we were married five years, and we both are still in the same home group. We're both still sober because we always stayed close to our sponsors. We always put AA first, and um, I'm so grateful for that. Um, you know, I've been married and divorced a couple of times in sobriety, and uh, I smoked, not smoked, smoked, not smoked, smoked, not smoked, and, you know, had all these things happen, but the thing, if I, as long as I don't pick up a drink and I stay, you know, close to AA, I have, I, you know, anything's possible, and I was given direction that I wasn't allowed to miss meetings when a relationship breaks up because there were a lot. Um, a lot of my old behavior repeated for a while in, in sobriety, and um, my sponsor told me I had to walk with my head held high and I had to show up to my regular meetings on my regular days. And when I saw my ex, I wasn't just saying, how are you? How's everything? It's good to see you. You know, it was, I was just saying, it's good to see you. Have a great meeting. <laughs> statements. Clear, brief statements. And, um, but anyway, so, um, so I go, I, I, I make all these amends, and now it's, um, you know, uh, turn one, get married, um, really active in my group, staying really on top of things, like 10th step. I mean, I, I was like, a robot. I had a friend of mine say, you're the epitome of everything I hate in the Pacific group. It's like, oh my gosh, because we have a reputation for being a rather structured group. And, um, but I was so afraid that I was going to go drink and use again. I was working a perfect program. It was perfect. And I mean, I would, if I had a feeling of anger or anything come up, I mean, I would like, I'd pull over and like run to a payphone, which is a glass box with a telephone inside that... (laughs) I, I remember doing that, like having, a, I felt anger, and so I did, I did this inventory. I stopped by the side of the road, call Marilyn, I'm like, oh my God, I've got a resentment, I've got to read it to you right now, stat, you know. Um, but I was really active in my group. I was, um, you know, the meditation thing, I remember asking Marilyn, Marilyn, do you meditate? And she said, it's our 11th step. Like, hello? I was, oh, shit. And so I've gone through phases where I've done like the meditation. I've done all different things that I've learned. I've been to meditation classes. You know, I, um, today I have a routine that works and it may change too. But, um, today what I do is I set my alarm for about an hour before I have to start getting ready and I do nothing. And when I, with that time, you know, I think about the day. I, you know, I say prayers. I, I start myself off so I'm not in a rush. When I when I get ready and, you know, wake up, get going, I'm on the road like, you know, I'm like, ah! But when I just take this time, everything is different. It's amazing. Um, so I, I'm, my life is going really well. I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm feeling connected. You know, I'm starting, the, the result of doing these steps, I'm starting to have those 10-step promises come true. I'm, the ninth step for sure. And, um I'm, I'm helping others. I'm of maximum service. I am going from morning until night every day. Action, 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 because that's the answer is action. And um, 
what happened was I, I ended up having a second back surgery. I'd had a back surgery early in sobriety, and uh, I needed to have a, a more serious surgery. I had a lumbar fusion, and they went through the front, and I was looking at about a six-month recovery. And I was one of those people where there were complications, and I ended up being bedridden for about a year. And, um, and I had to learn to work a whole new program because my little program of action and not really feeling too connected, um, unless I was moving at a high velocity, <laughs> um, wasn't going to work. And I was taken care of by my group. My mom and grandma weren't able to be there for me for whatever reasons, but um, it seems like these times where I feel like s- certain people should be there or will be there, um, they often can't or aren't there, but God always puts somebody there. you know. And I had babysitters who came over and took care of me during that time. Um, Doug was one of my babysitters, <laughs> and he would come over every week. And I had people coming over that, honestly, I wouldn't have had a cup of coffee with. And I was getting to know people on this whole different level. And these seemingly dark times became now are some of my most joyful and most meaningful times. I, I was able to connect with people at a level that's just not available in everyday life, you know, when you're moving so quickly. But when you're in a situation like this, I mean, you just get to the heart of the matter so so much more quickly. And so I was having these really deep, beautiful relationships with people that I honestly would have never thought And um, I was taken care of during that time, and I had gotten involved with somebody right away um, uh, after I got divorced. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) And um, we were together a few months when when my surgery happened, and then there were complications, and I was diagnosed with something called RSD, which is reflex sympathetic dystrophy, and my doctor had treated somebody before me who had had this disease, and so he knew immediately what I had because the other guy he couldn't diagnose for like a year, and so he knew exactly what I had, and I had to start going to the hospital three times a week to get lumbar and cervical punctures, so these needles in my neck and my spine and um, IVs in my leg because that's where it, it had started, and I'm recovering from this massive surgery at the same time, and being taken to the hospital by people in AA, I'm being brought meetings, I'm being brought prayer groups, I'm um, being taken out to meetings and uh, putting a lounge chair in the back of the room and, and laying in the back of the room. And um, my boyfriend, so I, this is happening, I lose my job, um, I don't have any money, I can't drive anymore, um, I can't even color my hair, and I'm a little vain, so that was, that was actually one of the worst parts of the whole thing. But And then... <laughs> My my boyfriend said he'd consider a relationship and a commitment with me when I was well, and he dumped me. And mm-hmm. and <laughs> I called Marilyn to tell her the latest installation of my pain. And um, and she, at the time she was learning to play guitar and she was taking care of her mother. And um, she said, oh, "This sounds like a wonderful country western song." <laughs> And she started playing a country blues, a country blues progression, and sang my blues to me, and um, and it made me laugh, you know. And I'm so so grateful that that she has has that kind of sense of humor because um, it really it it helped me so much. And um, at that time, there was a guy going in our group who had Lou Gehrig's disease, and um, he was 33 years old, and um, he had ALS, and I had watched him talking at a podium to um, being in a wheelchair paralyzed from the neck down, and the one thing that never changed about him was his joy. 
and his love for this program. He sponsored tons of guys. He'd load them in his handicap van, and they'd go to conventions. And he lived in Las Vegas at first, then San Diego. But every week they came to the Pacific Group, and they were just on fire with AA. And that was such an attraction for me. And, you know, I was, you know, suffering. I was laying in the back of the meetings, and I was in pain every day. And my disease wasn't fatal. It was debilitating, but not fatal. His was fatal. And, um... And with the sixth and seventh step, you know, I can I can pray for a character defect to be removed, but what happens is an assignment appears. And in in this case, it was Mike Finch. He he was this glorious man, and I was so full of um, self pity and uselessness, and I was able to be of service to him, to be friends with him, and then I was able to take care of him uh, the last six months of his life. We were friends, and then we became more than friends, and. I got to be with him those last six months, and we were surrounded by AA, and we were both taken care of by AA, and I would have not chosen to love someone I knew was going to die, but we never know. You know, right around that time, there were a lot of people, okay, people say stupid stuff in AA, just go to your sponsor, run it by them. But people were saying to me, you're with Mike, isn't he dying? And I'd be like, no, he's actually living. Yeah, he's right there, see? Um... But during that time is when John F. Kennedy Jr. died. And I remember Marilyn saying, who would have thought that John F. Kennedy Jr. would have died before Mike? Hmm. (laughs) Um, So I was was there with Mike. I I ended up moving with him. And my relationship with my mom and grandma was getting better and better over these years. And... You know, I was working, um, was keeping current on my steps. Up until about this time, I kind of started letting things fall through the cracks. My life was just getting really kind of scary with my health. And I was going through Mike's death, which should have been like a spiritual time, but but I, I let myself get depleted, and I didn't take care of my spiritual condition because I was trying to take care of him. And I can't take care of someone else if I don't, you know, I need to put the oxygen mask on myself. And I, it was a tough lesson to learn. And one of those things that kind of were, fell in regret but now becomes an asset because I get to use that experience to have a different experience today and to share that with others. But um, about a month before Mike died, my grandma died. And then Mike died. And um, I was able to be there for my mom. And I had been a good granddaughter, and I knew that. And there was peace in that. And I, I moved back to L.A., and I was trying to, to get back into living. I, I still suffer from chronic pain today, but I treat it with alcoholism and Pilates. I don't want to have any debates after the meeting, but that's what works for me, meetings and Pilates. Um, so I, I moved back to L.A., and my mom says, I need to talk to you. So I drive up, up north to see my mom. She lived in Cambria with my grandma, and um, she said, there's some things I need to tell you about. I was seven years sober at that time, and she said, there's some things I need to tell you about, but I needed to wait until Grandma was gone because they they affect, the, you know, out of respect for her. And so for two days we sat together, and she told me her story, which I'd never known, and that was that at eight years old my grandma was put out of her home um, because they couldn't afford to keep both of the kids, so they sent my grandma to live with another family. And... Um, that was at eight years old. She never went to another day of school, and she ended up servicing the men in that house and being kind of like the house girl. And to get out of that situation, she got pregnant at 18 with my mom and married a man she didn't love to get out of there. Um, my grandma was young and without any kind of tools for living, um, and she 
started hanging with um, men who were involved in racketeering and prostitution, and my grandma went that way and became a madam, and at 15, she turned my mom out to do the same thing. Um, my mom was pregnant at 15 and 16 with children that she put up for adoption. She was sexually abused, physically abused, emotionally abused by everyone that my grandma brought into their life. Um, she lived on the streets of Hollywood while she was pregnant with these children because my grandma didn't want her in the house pregnant. And, um, I mean, she just had the worst life, and I had no idea. I mean, I, I always say she had the worst story I've ever heard, but then there's Michael, so I'm not sure. But we really, I mean, you know, we hear we hear these stories, and we think, you know, I just, I had no idea I, I was so angry with my mom for so long for not giving me what I thought she should give me, which is, you know, love and direction and all this stuff. But these were things she never possessed. She never had them to give. It wasn't like she was holding on to them saying, I'm not giving them to you. <laughs> she never had them to begin with. So I never brought up those secrets that I kept in the book. Now, the secrets in the book I had were that my mom and dad had never been married, which made sense why I wasn't at his funeral. But it was that my mom was his mistress. And I was like, oh, okay, didn't know that. And then my dad had had a kid with a neighbor. And so I found out I had all these siblings I don't know about. And, you know, all these secrets and all of this, this stuff that had happened to my mom. And, and she never lived in the same house. She never got to finish school. All of these things that I thought my childhood was so tragic. And I, I was so glad that I'd been given the direction I'd been given to treat my mom like she was this hero, to send the cards, to make the calls, to do the visits and because I got to know this magnificent woman. Her name was Betty, and I used to call her Boop. And she was funny and smart and damaged and a hoarder and all of these really scary things, but I got to love her exactly where she was, and I got to know this magnificent woman because I got to take all my mommy stuff to my sponsor and to my friends, and I got to just be um, Betty's daughter. And I had a mad mad crush on her for that the last couple of years of her life and I was able to be there when she died I'm not actually when she died but during that period I took care of her and um, we were at the hospital she was 75 years old she had had lung cancer it went to bone cancer then it went to brain cancer and so she was in pain we were going in for yet another test she's 75 she looks terrible feels terrible and the x-ray technician comes out and my mom says this won't affect my ability to bear children will it and, um, and I thought I could have missed it all, you know. I, if I had followed the direction of well-meaning friends and therapists and all that that said you need to confront and you can't be the secret keeper and all of these things. But here I learned about love and tolerance and that all I had to do was love them. And that's all I have to do, my side of the street. I, love wins. Love always wins. And I got to have that amazing experience. And... Um, you know, I I, um, I never thought I could survive my mom's death. I just I thought, well, when she dies, then I'll drink. <laughs> but um, but obviously that hasn't happened, and I'm grateful for that um, because it's like with the steps. You're looking at step one, and you're thinking, how am I going to do a daily inventory? Well, you don't know that till you get there, and how am I going to have a conscious contact with God? You don't know until you do all those steps, and so all of this, the experiences that I'd had in AA and of finding a higher power and having this amazing fellowship and working with a sponsor every day and all of the things that we do prepared me for that. And um, I went through a horrible depression with double-digit sobriety. After my mom died, I got, um, right before she died, I got married to somebody 
that I probably shouldn't have gotten married to. We weren't really well matched, but I was looking, I was still looking for someone on the outside to fix me, and I still didn't even know it, even though I'd done all these steps, and I, I, I mean, there were patterns, and somehow I just, it was like you don't know what you don't know, and um, it was such a blind spot for me, and um, during that time, I was, um, I became suicidal again, and I was calling Marilyn every day, and I was doing my tenant. I was doing a daily review with her. I was um, going to meetings. I was trying to pull myself out of this darkness, and uh, um, I decided that I, I did want to kill myself. But something, something inside said, "Why don't you try going through the steps again?" Wow, <laughs> what a novel idea! You know, I'm like. Um, 15, 16 years sober in that period, I'm driving out to speak at meetings. I'm crying all the way to meetings, washing off my face, going and saying, hi, I'm your speaker tonight. You know, and I thought, what do I have to offer? But what I had to offer was that I was suffering from this horrible depression, but I was still showing up. I was still not picking up a drink. You know, I was showing up, carrying the message, and um, and I shared honestly what was going on, but I always shared about what I was doing in the solution. And so we bear witness to each other. And, and if we let people see what we're going through, um, it allows them to see the magnificent work that God is doing in our lives and the magnificent work that AA is doing in our lives. And, um, and so um, I, I started volunteering at the Midnight Mission during that time. And today, next to getting sober, working at the Midnight Mission is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I, I work on Skid Row every day. Um, I love how you say with the uh, with unlovable people, seemingly unlovable people, and um, they are my people. They are you and me. They are not. It's not us and them. It's you and me divided by circumstance. And these are all the people who have had all the yets happen. You know, we say that hasn't happened to me yet. <laughs> well, this is all the yets have happened to these people, and I get to take all the love and hope and joy that I get in these rooms, and I get to take it down to Skid Row. And um, I started a music program and an art program, and I took all of these desires that I believe God has placed in my heart that not necessarily are going to make me money doing them on my own or whatever, but just if I follow that pull. If I follow that pull, it takes me to where I can be of most use. During that depression, I came up, I, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I was married. Um, I had money at that time. I've had money, not money, whatever. Inside happiness is way better than any outside stuff I've ever had. But I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was like, should I be a grocery checker or should I go to school and become a brain surgeon? Like, I had no clue. <laughs> but I kept feeling this desire to be on skid row to go down, to be of service. And, and in doing that, I found a, a perfect job for me. And um, I do want to share just a couple of um, uh, things, and then I'm going to sit down. But um, I wanted to give you an example of, of my thinking. So I went on this amazing trip to Hawaii with my three best friends. We went to Maui, and it is paradise. And I'm with the three people I love most on the planet. And we are staying, I mean, we're just staying in the most beautiful places, and I, I, these people are sober, but they don't need to go to, to as many meetings as I do. For whatever reason, they're cool. I'm not. I know this about myself now. So I'm with them, and they're like, I'm like, do you guys want to hit a meeting while we're in town? Let's get, you know, and they're like, oh, no, we're just going to, whatever. I'm like, okay. And so in a couple of days, I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, they've never wanted me on this trip. Look at how nice they're being to each other. They're, I just, they're not treating me that same way. But I know when this happens, 
that I need to look at, at me. And so I said, pardon me for just a moment. And I went, took my cell phone, I called the sober person back home, told them my crazy thoughts, got a meeting directory, and I said, hey, you guys, I'm going to go hit a meeting. What are you doing? We're going to go shopping and go to dinner, hooked up with them later. And I learned that that's, you know, what I need to do to take care of myself. Um, I Today I know I'm wrong a lot, which is such a gift to just get to that place, you know? <laughs> my... Um, my fiancé did something to break my trust, and so he, he left the house, and um, I looked at his iPad. And I'm, I'm not a snooper in sobriety, and, but I did. I, I did this. And so he has something on his iPad, I guess, that told him on his phone or something. So he's, he's coming back for an appointment. He goes, hey, and he said it in the nicest way, did you happen to move my iPad? And I said, no, I opened it. I went through the whole thing. <laughs> Seriously, what freedom? I said, I'm so sorry. He said, please don't ever do that again. And I said, okay. Boom. Done. Um, I just, I used to be so tired, so emotionally tired, so exhausted. And I used to try and sleep, and I could never get enough sleep, never get enough sleep. And I find out that if I fill my soul and I take care of my spiritual condition, I no longer waste my energy, you know, the way I used to. And um, today, there was, and this last thing. So um, I remember hearing when I when I was new that um, Deepak Chopra, however you say Chopra, Chopra said, "That which you are seeking is causing you to seek." And I and I would say, "Oh, yeah, that's deep," and but not know what is. I have no idea what that means. But I, <laughs> you tell it, Deepak. But um, <laughs> after having experiences over the years, what I've come to understand is my desire to seek a higher power. That desire is there by my higher power. So just the fact that I'm seeking means I'm connected. I used to think I'm not connected. How do I stay connected? I don't know how to stay con- How do I stay connected? You know, with knees, pray, whatever. Um, it's such a working part of who I am now. It's constant thoughts of thy will be done before I cross the threshold to my boss's office. It's, it's an inner working part of who I am. Every second of every day, I'm constantly thinking in that way. But today I know as long as I'm seeking, I'm connected. Because that thing that I'm seeking has caused me to seek. So as long as I'm seeking, there's no place I'm going to arrive. I am here. We are all here. We are seeking. You are connected. We are connected. Boom. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.